in chapter 12. And we're going to spend some time looking at uh, the last portion of verse 28 and talk about acceptable worship with reverence and awe, or as your translation might say, acceptable service, which is, is good. Both words are great to consider because they are portraying the same thing. Um, I'm trying to remember how I had this set up. Let me get to my notes here. Ah, okay. All right. So just take your eyes to Hebrews 12 there, and let's just look at the the, the two passages again. And do you feel like you've got an understanding of, and we'll see it more, of why the author sort of threw in that, that last phrase there at the end? For our God is a consuming fire. It seems as if it was sort of really ringing all the bells as we've talked, went through it, especially even considering the shaking that takes place. But we'll see more about how that fits in the, this evening. Verse 28, Therefore... Let us be grateful or have gratitude or show grace for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Father, bless the reading and the teaching and the preaching of your word. For Jesus' sake and our Christ-likeness. Amen. So the, I, the way that ESV set, uh, hits, gets that last phrase, it sort of puts a impediment between gratitude or thanksgiving and worship. Um, I, didn't, I don't have it with me, but I have a commentary that I've been using for assistance in this, and it makes the notion, so he does, he studies, the guy that wrote this commentary studies the Greek and then gives his translation from the Greek, uh, and and he said, and so let us be grateful, or be th- he said, let us be thankful, and by that thanksgiving, let us offer to God. So he, he was saying that the Greek is suggesting that it is, as we mentioned this morning, that the offering of our service and worship is coming from our gratitude and our thankfulness for the grace that we've received, which is receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So it's our, our worship comes from our thanksgiving, but there's one thing one adjective that we cannot miss, and that is, is that our worship or our service must be acceptable. Acceptable. And acceptable, when you dive into uh, that word, uh, means to quite be quite agreeable or well-pleasing. So the question I just want to ask you is, who are we trying to be agreeable with? 
Who are we trying to please with our worship and service? It's God. It's God. Um, A true worshiper of God desires to please God. That is what is said or what is meant by the word acceptable. And I sort of kind of, as I was writing writing through this, I felt like I kept being redundant and kind of circling back around. The only way to serve someone whom you are grateful for is through desiring to please them, as to please God who saved you, please Christ who died for you. Um, but who decides what pleases God? God. <laughs> And so I know this kind of seems elementary, but the problem is, is sometimes the simpler it gets, the easier it is to miss it or to just lay it aside and forget it. And so our acceptable worship is to be agreeable with God or to please God. Well, who decides what pleases God or what's agreeable with God? Well, it is God. He is the standard. He is the one who determines how we ought to serve him. So if he's the one who determines how we are to worship and serve him, how much do you think he takes advice from outsiders? None. Um, Was it in Romans? Uh, And I think it's a quotation of either a psalm or Isaiah. And he says, who has given counsel to God? Right? No, no one. No one. Um, God only. And here's the other thing. So if God is the one who creates the standard, God decides what's agreeable and pleasing to him, then we have to understand this. God only accepts what he is pleased by. Okay? He only... Man, I could get lost in, in Isaiah 1, Right? as far as Israel's worship. And they were doing things that they were supposed to do, but it did not please God. And ultimately, hang on to that, actually. And we're, we're going to end this, why Isaiah chapter 1 and Israel's doing things by the book didn't please God. We'll come back to that. Um, so God's the deciding factor. Now, the question is, how do you know what pleases God? He tells us. us. That's right. He's prescribed it in his word. All acceptable worship is found in the scriptures. All acceptable service unto God is found in the scriptures. Now, here's what we're going to do for a little bit. We're going to go to the Old Covenant and think about it from that perspective and see if we can gain anything. But we're going to start in the New Testament to consider the Old Testament. So I, Just so I can, I can help you see that there's connect, uh, continuity. So in Hebrews chapter 9, I want to show you a couple things. And I, you know, I apologize because when we started Hebrews, I had a goal, and that was a chapter a Sunday, and I regret that dearly, <laughs> dearly, because we missed so much. I, 
you know, we could have we could have just hit the high points, and as you can tell, we're slowing down. But there's so many things that comes out of Hebrews. You could spend so much time in here. But in chapter 9, verse 1, I just want to point out some things to help us start thinking about worshiping, serving God as he has commanded. Okay, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship. Does anybody say command, commands or commandments or something of that? So regulations meaning there's rules. The first covenant had rules for worship, but your translation might use the word what? Service. So same Greek word. Um, and then if you read two through five, you see some of this set up here, and then even into six, Seven. Oh, let's go to six. So in these regulations, preparations, rules are having to be followed. Having thus been made, the priest goes regularly into the first section, performing the ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. When he says the second, what room is he talking about in the temple? The most holy room. The holy of holies. And what is in the Holy of Holies? The Ark. And what else? What else? The presence of God. <laughs> Hovering over the Ark that housed the commandments, the, the, the tablets. Right? That's why it was the Holy of Holies. So keep, you have to keep this in your mind as we're thinking Old Covenant and, and Holy of Holies and the, and the presence of God and only the high priest is able to enter, right? That's what it says there. Um, verse 8, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. Now, we can't get lost in that. I just want to, there's just some things here I want you to see. Um and then he's got this quotate. He's got this parenthetical statement, which is symbolic for the present age. And then he says, according to this arrangement, the regulations of the first covenant, okay, that that have been marked out here, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Now, bit of a different translation here. Mine says calls the person going into the holy of holies the worshiper. Your translation might say, uh, him who did the service, who is the worshiper. See, it's just different language, same concept. So again, the high priest is a worshiper. He's a servant going into the presence of God. Okay, Um, the priest had strict regulations and commands how they were to serve God, how they were to worship God. Now, go with me now to Leviticus 6, and we're going to see some of these rules and regulations. Leviticus 6. I know this is kind of all like real nerdy, geeky Bible study stuff, but it unveils a glorious reality of how one ought to worship, how one ought to serve the Lord. Okay, chapter 6 of Leviticus, verse 8. 
Now, what we're looking for is regulations and rules for the worshiper who would be, as we'll see in verse 1, Aaron and his sons because they were the ones who were ordained by God to be the priests. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command Aaron and his sons saying, this is the law of the burnt offering. So the regulation, the rule, the command, the burnt offering shall be on the hearth of the altar all night until the morning and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. So again, just make sure you see that we're getting many and many details and instructions and rules. 10, and the priest shall put on his linen garment and put his linen undergarment on his body. And he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. 11, then he shall take off his garment and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. 12, the fire on the altar should be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. Whew. Sometimes I just, I wonder, did they ever go, really God? I mean, that's a lot. Now the question is, is was God really concerned about all those particular details? What if they just said, I messed up a little bit. Look at, look at Leviticus 11. 10, excuse me. Leviticus 10. 10. Chapter 10, verse 1. What happens if they messed up? Was it okay? Did they get, you know, a pat on the back, try next time? Chapter 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, and put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and, un and offered unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Okay, so we've, what we first have is what? Disobedience. They, 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 they did not, now no one knows why. No one knows if they thought, oh, this could go faster if we just bring our own fire in. We don't know. But they didn't serve God the way he said they should serve God. He strictly says that they did what was not commanded them. Which is sin. Whether it was a sin of omission or a sin of commission. Whether you did something you shouldn't have done or did something you shouldn't have done. Now look at the result. They approach God in an unacceptable way. Well, keep that in mind, right? Unacceptable, not pleasing. Verse 2, And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Is there any words in that that sounds like Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29? Fire, consume. I, I think the, the King James says devour. Same same idea. Fire, the Lord our God is a consuming fire. And the fire came out before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. So here's what we have to understand. 
first and foremost, was the punishment or discipline. I don't know if I'd call it punishment. I think we'll see this later somewhere else. It could, maybe it's something I read. God might not necessarily have been punishing them, but he disciplined them in the sense as a father would a son. And it led to their, oh, that's where I see it. Uh, Yeah. So to keep them from disobeying and bringing up strange fire before him, perhaps he said, I'm not going to let you do that again. Because just because this happened to Nadab and Abihu doesn't mean we assume that they're unbelievers and the Lord cast them into hell forever because they did this. But if they truly lived by faith and, and, and were children of God, sons of God, this could have well have been the Lord saying, stop it. And we'll see that in another example in the New Testament later. So fire consumed them. The fire from the Lord. Now, again, think about our context of Hebrews, the types of words we're using. Now look at verse 3. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord had said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. Hebrews 10, 19, 20, 21. Draw near to God. We draw near to God in our service and worship to him. But he says, when you draw near, you remember that I am holy. That's what he says when he means sanctified. That I am set apart. You cannot treat my presence like anybody else. There is none like me. So when you come before me, how must you come before me? In obedience. And fear and to and, and humility, because what does he say? And before all the people, I will be glorified. So very much similar language and ideas. Um, and those three three words we talked about worship and service this morning: submission, obedience, sacrificial, self denial. Whatever thing whatever thing happened here with Nadab and Abihu, they obviously probably were were inward thinking, not outward. And then sacred, seeing holy, uh, serving holy because God is holy. Now, on our way back to the New Testament, stop in Isaiah 6. And I just want to read Isaiah 6, hopefully in a new light that you had not read before. I'm not going to comment it. I just want to read it because I think when we when we consider... What we've read there in, De- in Leviticus and thinking about God being set apart uh, cons- um, and exalted. When we think about how we come into the presence of God, we see some pretty remarkable things here. And the year that uh, this is chapter six, verse one, and the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. What? Where is he? High and lifted up, and the train of his robe fell filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. 
Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. I can't give you this for sure, but I've heard that they're covering their face because they're in the very presence of God. They are covering their feet because they dare not tread on the the ground that the Lord is sitting upon. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, the response of the building tells you something. And then the response of the person tells you something. And the foundations of the threshold shook. Hey, that sounds like a familiar word. At the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Ha, another familiar word. But then Isaiah responds, Woe is me. Why? Because God is holy and he is not. And so he knows that that smoke and that tremble and that fire could eat him up in a minute justly. And so how does he say, woe is me for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then God acts in his grace and does not devour Isaiah. Verse 6, then, the one, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Grace. Grace. Now, as we make our way back to the New Testament, you think, well, come on, Luke. That's the Old Testament. What's that got to do with us? Well, I'll submit to you a few reasons why that has a lot to do with us. And number one is really simple, and we're going to get to it next week. God never changes. Not next week, but as we get into Hebrews 13, he's the same yesterday, today. And forever. He never changes. But when you look at the New Testament, it's just simply not true that God's desire for pure, holy worship by his commands never change. Now, here's a few examples. Acts chapter 5. The church is brand new. And I would say in great acts of worship and service, the church, the members of this New Testament church are selling their possessions for the sake of one another. If anyone is in need, they would sell their property for the sake of giving to the other members of this new church. Chapter 5, verse 1, and we're introduced to Ananias and Sapphira. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property like everyone else or like other people were doing. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds that brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So he put part of the proceeds at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, 
Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself parts of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell dead down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval, about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed his last. When the young men came and they found their dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Now look here. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You say, you might say, well, Luke, that's not worship, right? That's not service. Well, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Maybe I can convince you with this one. Well, let me ask you this. We took the Lord's Supper this morning. Was it worship? Without a doubt. Go to chapters, or verse 17 in chapter 11. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because you come together when you come together as a church, mind you, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part for uh, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So he doesn't really take too much problem with their division Because, as the old saying goes, truth divides. When you come together, though, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. A lot of us kind of stop there. Don't read the rest of it. But let's check out the rest of this paragraph. Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who drinks or eats and drinks without discerning the body and drinks judgment on himself Let's look at verse 30. This is very interesting. That is why many of many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. You get that? 
they were they were partaking of the Lord's Supper in worship in an unworthy manner. And and Paul says, God is judging you for that. And because of that, because of that judgment, some of your people are weak and ill, and even some have died. He says, verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Now that's for another sermon. But when we are judged by the Lord, here's where that discipline comment came. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along the world. So here's the way I take that. God killed some of those in the Corinthian church as a way of fatherly disciplining them so that they would stop profaning his table. And then find and then what does he say? And then find, um, be condemned along with the world. That's serious stuff. That's, uh, that is so serious. But then you just consider our text from this morning and tonight, Hebrews 12, 8, or 28 and 29. The, real, the absolute premise of this is, is that there is an acceptable way of worship in reverence, with reverence and all, and then you, he, he didn't just add that he's a consuming fire at the end of it for no reason, right? <laughs> Nothing will stand that is not eternal. An unacceptable worship cannot stand, but will be burned up by the consuming fire of God. Now, oh man, there's a theological reason about why looking at the priest of the Old Testament has application with us today. And I'm going to try to do this as quick as possible. You know in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3 maybe, 2, he calls the church a priesthood. Okay? A priesthood. Now why would he do that? When I say he called the church a priesthood, there's the, there's a doctrine known as uh, the priesthood of believers, which says in the new covenant, we are all priests. Okay? Now, I'm going to show you this just simply in Hebrews. Okay? Go to chapter 4. This one, this one's sort of an outlier, and I could probably should have tagged it on at the end, but I'm just trying to go in succinct order here. Hebrews 4, verse 16. Hebrews 4, 16, yes. Let us then, he's talking to this church, this community of Christians in, uh, that he's writing to, let us then, and including himself, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Now, in the Old Testament, who drew near to God? The priest. Okay? But there has been a change. And that... All believers can draw near to the presence of God. Now, chapter 8 helps us see this. When the writer here quotes Jeremiah 32, I believe, 31, where Jeremiah prophesies of the new covenant, verse uh, 8. 
For he finds fault with them when he says, and here's now here's the quote from Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Okay, so he's about to sort of outline the new covenant here. Number one, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God. Okay, and they shall be my people. Verse 11, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, No, for they shall all know, know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Well, we have to kind of take that in the sense of old versus new and realize that the people who knew the Lord and came into his presence were just the priests. And the people's dependency on knowing the Lord came through the priesthood. But now in the new covenant, it is completely changed. And all now stand in the presence of God in multiple ways. Number one, because God, Jesus Christ has what to the veil of the Holy of Holies? Yeah, he tore that thing up. He says it's gone. The presence of God, access to God is now open through chapter 10, verse 19. We have confidence to enter the holy places. How? By the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. Now there's one more thing I hope to convince you that we are now worshipers in the presence of God like the priests were of old. And now go back to 9. I'm sorry. And we looked at verse eight, or I'm sorry, verse nine of chapter nine, when we were talking about the priests of the Old Testament and how their consciences couldn't even be cleansed by what was taking place. But then we get to verse eleven, and he starts talking about what happens now with Jesus. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of the creation. He, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkled of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, pay close attention, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify not the priest, but our conscience from dead works to do what? Serve the living God. No more is there a priesthood in the line of Levi who are the only ones in service to to the Lord in his presence. But now through the blood of Jesus Christ, Our consciences have been purified from dead works to come into his presence and serve him and worship him. You, if you are in Christ, are a priest to God. So, 
it matters how you then serve him. You understand what I mean? God didn't say, these priests in the Old Testament, it mattered how they how they entered into my presence. But now this new thing, you know, y'all are priests, you just come in willy-nilly. No. We serve him and worship him by his prescription, by his word, in the same way that he prescribed to the priest of old to worship. Because if not, then why would he say, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, let me see here. One more thing, just hope hope to convince you, and then I want to talk about our corporate worship very quickly. How many of you all day have been thinking, he's not gone to Romans 12 yet? Dan filed. I mean, it's gone through our minds. Let's go to Romans 12 now. Now, I hope, for me, after I've studied through this in Hebrews 11, God has made me see Romans 12, 1 through 3, not differently, but more clearly. clearly. And in a sense of where it's like, you know, it's sparkling and it's just, yeah. Romans 12. So just keep in mind all that we've talked about, all that we saw in Hebrews 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Now, I'll just say this. You could you could change out the word there and put grace. Okay? Remember this morning, grace to gratitude to worship? He's saying in chapter 12, verse 1, hey, you remember the grace of God I just talked about for the last 11 chapters? By that mercy, by that grace, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Because of the grace, serve God this way. In order to worship God and to serve God, it must be in an acceptable way. Now, I the, notice the three, um, the three things there. How we're to present our bodies. A living sacrifice. We talked about that. Sacrificial. Holy. Sacred. Acceptable. Submissive. And obedient. This is your spiritual worship and service. It is the only acceptable, reasonable way. Now. How do you know how to do it? Well. He gives you the one way not to know how to do it. Verse 2, don't look at the world. I'm going to say that again. You want to know how to worship God, don't look at the world. I, I occasionally will listen to sermons in other churches and I listened to one this last week, and they had this huge screen up. It had to be 20 feet tall and 20 feet wide. And they had lights, and he was talking. I don't remember. I can't remember how he connected it. But he said, people always ask me, why do you have the lights? Why do you have the big screen? He goes, because that's what the world does, and we're going to do it better than the world. And I'm thinking, 
Are you kidding me? Are you serious? And this was the pastor. And so I, I want you to understand, the deception for us to look to the world can happen to us. Like, we're not immune to deception. And that's why we need one another. That's why we need to come here. That's why we need to have relationships and fellowships. Because we need to take care, brother, lest any of you have an evil, unbelieving heart being deceived by sin. Hebrews 3. Don't be conformed to the world. Your, your worship cannot be acceptable if you're trying to do it in the way the world does it. And you can't just tag on, but we're going to do it better. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, you know what I'm about to hold up, right? Your worship, if it is not, if it is mindless, it isn't acceptable. If you are, if we are not considerate and thoughtful of how the word describes how we ought to worship and serve God, if we are not, if we, if it is not coming into our minds and shaping our, our service and worship, we are going to verge on following the course of the world. True worship is thoughtful. Now. There's a lot more we could say about that. Uh, well, 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 actually, let's just read the rest of it. Be transformed by the renew of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Now, what would that be? How we ought to worship, how we ought to serve, how we ought to live. We discern what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now... When it comes to, and this is, we'll, we'll just close here. When we, when it comes to our way of thinking, or it comes to our corporate gathering, when we do come together to worship, okay? This, I said this isn't the only way we worship, but it is a way that we do worship when we come together. There are two ways of thinking of how it ought to be done. Uh, two camps. The first is that our worship, and this is... This debate and process is as old as uh, probably five, six hundred years old, probably since the, Re the Protestant Reformation. Our worship should get our worship gathering should consist of the elements or our parts of it should we should find it outlined in Scripture. So what what I'm doing now is a part of our worship gathering, right? What am I, what am I doing? I'm preaching. Can you find a text to to tell me? Hey, you should do that when you gather together. Yeah, okay. Oh, we sang. Well, can you find a text in the scriptures that say, yeah, you should do that. God says do that when you gather together. Yeah, okay. That's the first, that first camp is that you've got to have it pretty clearly mapped out in, in the scriptures that this is what you should do in your worship gathering. Um so we got things like read the Bible, sing the Bible, preach the Bible, baptism, the Lord's Supper, prayer. That's, that's pretty much it, right? Uh, that, that camp 
has a name. It's called the regulative principle of worship. Regulative meaning ordered, commanded, instructed. Okay. But then the other camp uh, is called the normative principle of worship, which affirms all those that we just talked about, all the things that Scripture says we should do, we should do. But also we have, um, what's the word? Romans 14, uh, freedom, liberty, to do things that aren't directly uh, – no, we can do things that aren't – that God doesn't say we can't do. I'm sorry. My mind's gone blank on me. You understand what I'm saying? So we can do whatever we want as long as God says we shouldn't do it. That's basically the normative principle. Does that make sense? So we can do it as long as God's word says don't do it. Okay, that's the, so the regulative says, no, God told you exactly what you should do. And if you do anything other than what God said you should do, you're outside of uh, his will. That's acceptable to him. The normative says, yeah, but if he said we couldn't do it, or if he didn't say we couldn't do it, then we have the liberty to do it. Okay, so and I don't I don't mean to be um, I don't mean to be joking here, but this that principle brings about ideas of drama or bodybuilders at churches or puppet shows. So those things aren't God says doesn't say directly that you can't do those things and so people do those things because they think they, they say they have the liberty to do those. Just ask Aaron's sons, right? Yeah. <laughs> so for me, I'm convinced that our worship is regulated by the word of God. That the elements that we we participate in are the ones that we should only participate in. I, I am held bound by my conscience because of the word of God that he has revealed to us what is acceptable and what isn't. And so as, as your pastor, your elder, your overseer, one who will give account for your soul, I will seek to lead us in worship only in the way that I feel God has prescribed. Because I don't. I don't want to get that wrong. Okay, I don't want to get that wrong. So let me leave you with two things. Uh, a, number one, or one, a quote from 1 Corinthians 3, and then another from the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. It says, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. I think that's true. I think that's true. And I think about as myself, as the pastor, I have 1 Corinthians chapter 3 stuck in my mind. 
Paul writes to the Corinthians, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one of you take care how he builds upon it. I am building upon a foundation here. I'm not laid a foundation. I would dare not say that. Paul said that. I'm building upon a foundation. He says in verse 11, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. We've talked about that day a lot the last couple weeks. Because it will be revealed by, you guessed it, fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now I want you to understand, this is in the context of the division between Corinth of who they follow. Do they follow Paul? Do they follow apostles? Do they follow Peter? Do they follow Jesus? So that the issue at hand in this section is about pastors and preachers. And the foundation that pastors and preachers build on, however they build, will be tested by fire by God on the day of judgment. And he says, each one's work, each pastor's, preacher's, elder's work will be manifest, will be made known. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. But only as through fire. So that's a burden that I I want to carry well as I lead you all. And so the last thing to close is to understand our worship means nothing apart from the only thing that truly pleases God. Do you know what it is? It's faith. Right? Trust God. The only way to please him is by faith. Let's pray. Father, teach us what is acceptable, what is holy and right for you. Forgive us. Forgive us when we live and worship or pastor in a way that is selfish, unholy, and disobedient. Teach us your ways. Show us your word and help us To discern what is your will, what is good and acceptable. God, we give us we give you our lives as living sacrifices. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Alright.